This week's podcast is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the dedicated team at Salesforce that delivers technology to non-profits, educational institutions and philanthropic organisations so they can connect with others and do more good. Salesforce.org empowers higher education with its Education Cloud, a set of integrated solutions built on the world's number one CRM. In today's fast-moving world, leveraging technology is essential to deliver the personalised, proactive and continuous experiences each student expects. But how can institutions embrace digital transformation and how can they leverage technology to improve the student experience, achieve operational excellence and strengthen their relationships with the community they serve? With a desire to help the community find answers to these questions, Salesforce.org launched the Higher Ed Summit in the US eight years ago and has gathered thousands of higher ed professionals to share insights and connect with peers annually ever since. To better serve their growing community of education trailblazers in Europe, the team has launched a regional summit called the Higher Ed Summit Horizons. And this year, Salesforce.org invites every higher ed professional and institution leader to join the ranks in Paris on the 10th of October and be inspired by pioneers in higher ed digital transformation. From building brand awareness, transforming the applicant experience, enhancing student services, building lifelong alumni relationships, or managing change and optimising technology across the campus, you'll hear from pioneers who have paved the way for the future of higher education and have driven all kinds of innovations at their institutions. The EdTech podcast will be at the event, moderating a panel discussion and conducting interviews with those shaping higher education. Come and join us and have a chat. Register today at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using our special code edtech50 to get 50% off your ticket. Not only will you get a chance to connect with professionals like yourself who are transforming learning, but you'll also hear from Graham Brown Martin, author and broadcaster of Learning Reimagined and founder of Learning Without Frontiers. Again, registration is at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using the special code edtech50 to get 50% off the ticket. And all details are available via our show notes for this episode at the edtechpodcast.com. Okay, let's go. We must recreate the European family in a regional structure called, it may be, the United States of Europe. And the first practical step would be to form a Council of Europe. If at first all the states of Europe are not willing or able to join the Union, we must nevertheless proceed to assemble and combine those who will and those who can. We, in, our, in Western society, we do like hero worship. We venerate the individual performance. And if you start thinking about just how individual those performances are, you very often find quite quickly that the manifestation of that creativity, that expertise, was not purely down to the individual. everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. 
My name is Sophie Bailey and this is the show that aims to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. I've just got back from taking our four-year-old on his first wild camping trip. Naturally, there was a lot of pesto pasta, wild swimming and not a lot of sleep. We were in Dartmoor National Park in the UK and on our walk we passed by Score Hill Stone Circle, which is estimated to be about 4,000 years old, which kind of puts a lot of things into perspective. Whatever you got up to at the weekend, I hope you had a chance to reflect and recharge your batteries. Thanks as always to our listeners this week for dropping us more messages. First up, here's past guest Samuel Muniwini from the African Institute for Children's Studies, calling in from Nairobi, Kenya. Good morning from here in Nairobi. It was really nice to meet Sophie uh, in Dubai at the Global Education Forum. And we at African Institute for Children's Studies really feel this kind of a platform of uh, the EdTech provides an opportunity to inform the young users of internet uh, on the risks of uh, online safety, risks to sexual exploitation. And we think this should be made very available to every child. And it doesn't discriminate whether you're from rich or poor family. Everyone is at risk because the internet has just changed. It's cut off all these uh, social classes and, and the risks are similar. So, so, so let's use the podcast to, to really enrich this information. Thank you very much. Thank you, Samuel. I'm wishing you the best of luck with your mission to continue best practice in online safety. Hi also to Art Friedrich in the States who messaged in to say hello. Greetings to Sophie Bailey and all of the wonderful folks at EdTech Podcast. This is Art Frederick from A Higher Vision contacting you to go and tell you and all of your listeners how much I truly enjoy your podcast. I listen to tons of them, but I always come back to you as my primary source because you provide a great uh, width of information regarding K-12 through and higher education and technology and how that all comes together. And it always, always, always raises as many questions for me as it answers, which is a good thing that we're always thinking. So I appreciate very much all that you do and keep up doing the good work. Love to be listening to this for a long time to come on my way and my journeys to work and back. Thanks, Art, for messaging in. And so glad you enjoy what we do. And we look forward to providing many more episodes. If you'd like to message in ahead of next week's show, drop us a 90-second voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Before we go into this week's episode, which looks at the emergence of the European EdTech network, a few more messages from our Ed and Tech media partners who've got events coming up. First up, here's Annie from Dare to Learn in Finland, who is double daring you to go to their event in September. The time of empty lectures and quota seminars is over. Welcome to Dare to Learn, an interactive and international learning festival at Koryamo Culture Factory in Helsinki on September 19th and 20th, 2019. Dare to Learn is the largest learning festival in Northern Europe and the most daring one in the world. It is a two-day playground bringing together those who dare to create the future of learning. 
and be part of it. It is where the current and uprising topics in learning are discussed and new practical solutions presented. Don't go with the flow. Ride it. Dare to join us? Next up, a quick hello from Ben Salter, Senior VP at QS, to talk about Reimagine Education, whose event takes place on the 8th, 9th and 10th of December across Imperial College London and the QE2 Conference Centre, also in London. Well, most people know QS because we produce rankings of universities. Love haters, that's what we're most known for. Uh, one of the things that people also know about rankings of universities is that they don't do a fantastic job at looking at what's going on in the classroom and teaching and innovation and, and some of the exciting things that universities are getting up to. So that's where we started Reimagine Education from. Could we build something that enabled us to showcase some of the fantastic innovations that universities are really putting in place for their students and how they're working with edtech startup companies and investors to really push that envelope. So Reimagine Education comes to London beginning of December and it's a fantastic sort of crunch moment for universities and educators, edtech startups and investors all to get in the same place and figure out how they all fit together. So we're really excited to see how Europe stacks up. It's the Ryder Cup of education, technology and innovation. <laughs> and if people want to find out more, what's the website as well? Just the website is reimagine-education.com. Okay, thanks very much, Ben. Thank you. Thanks, Annie and Ben. And if you want to know about all the events coming up between now and the end of the year, go and check out our global events calendar on the EdTech Podcast website. This week's episode is closer to home, sharing recordings made live at the launch of the European EdTech Network during London EdTech Week. For those who have been following the news, the ambitions of the network are interesting in the wake of Alt School's pivot after raising nearly 200 million US dollars. Many level the perceived failure or change of direction at Alt School in relation to the lack of educators at the helm, relying only on the Silicon Valley faith in everything tech. In Fortune magazine, I quote, Alt School is turning over its few remaining schools to an organisation with experience educating children. At the same time, it will rename itself Altitude Learning and become the thing it avoided from the get-go, a technology company. End quote. To avoid more of these edtech stories, perhaps the old proverb of if you want to go fast, go alone, if you want to go far, go together, rings true. So what does all this mean for today's episode? According to the EETN website, the European EdTech Network is a three-year project funded by the European Commission within the Erasmus Strategic Partnership for Higher Education Programme. I quote, it is the first strategic partnership in the EU that brings together teachers, researchers, students and entrepreneurs in the field of education and digital technologies through university managed innovation programmes, including incubators and accelerators, in order to promote digital methodologies and pedagogies that will ultimately improve higher education systems in Europe. Four leading European universities, i.e. University, University College London, KU Levin and Oulu University of Applied Sciences decided to join their efforts using their knowledge and broad experience in the field of edtech in order to create this unique collaborative space for all the players on the European edtech scene and beyond. End quote. Exciting stuff. And for anyone who's heard about the Educate project via the podcast, think Educate but European wide. Sounds pretty cool, hey? 
This week's recording features two panel discussions providing different EdTech perspectives in Europe. As an aside, these were probably my highlight of London EdTech Week, benefiting as they did from having end users, i.e. universities and educators in the room, creating a totally different vibe and that bridging of ed and tech that we love on the podcast. In the first panel, you'll hear from views on the role of HE in nurturing EdTech entrepreneurship, including Avi Warshawski, CEO of Mindset, Cyril Ganem, Head of Business Development at Absco, and Leila Guerrera, Assistant Dean of Programmes at Imperial College Business School, chaired by Professor Rose Luckin from Centred Learning Design at UCL and Director of Educate. In the second panel, you'll hear about the role of EdTech support in learning and teaching uh, at higher education institutes from the amazing Angela McFarlane, who described the benefits of technology and education in the most succinct manner I've probably ever heard over the last three plus years. Katie Fryer, founder and CEO of LearnIt, and Vic Vicek, Chief Innovation Officer at Digital Promise, Global and Executive Director of the Learner Variability Project. And this one was chaired by Mary Cannock Cook, former CEO of UCAS and Chair of Emerge. Alison Clark Wilson and Lucia Figar introduced from UCL Educate and IE University, respectively. I hope very much that you enjoy this episode. All the links will be in our show notes. And don't forget, if you want to support what you can do, you can go to theedtechpodcast.com and click the giant button which says donate. Take care and have a great week. Good evening, everyone, and on behalf of University College London, and in particular, the UCL Educate project based at the Institute of Education, can I warmly welcome you to the launch of the European EdTech Network, which is a collaboration in the higher education sector that really hopes to make a change in the way that we communicate, collaborate, and work on all issues around EdTech over the next few years. So I'd like to um, invite Lucia uh, Figa, who is um, our project leader, to say a little bit more about the project. Hope you have an enjoyable evening. Hope this is both informative and will help you to see how you might become activated and involved in this exciting new network. So uh, th thank you very much, uh, everybody. Thank you very much, Alison. Uh, I would like that my first uh, words uh, go to uh, UCL, particularly UCL Educate, for organizing this event. You've really done a, a, an incredible uh, a job. And thank you, and thank you also, everybody that is here this afternoon for joining us uh, in this amazing project. I will spend just a few minutes trying to, to explain a little bit on the project and then also say in a few words of uh, my, the university I'm representing, which is uh, IE University from Spain. So, um, what is EETN? Um, it is a, a project funded by the European uh, uh, Commission within the Erasmus Plus program. It is a winner in the competition uh, uh, among 85 projects. This is last year, 2019. And uh, a three-year duration. It has a three-year duration, uh, the whole project. So, we have funding to do this, what I'm going to explain, during the next three years. The partners of this project, the founding partners are IE University from Spain, 
University College of London from the UK, University of Leuven from Belgium, and Ole University in Finland. As you may know, many of these competitive projects awarded by the European Commission require that uh, at least uh, three different European countries, universities, partners are, are represented. So we're very glad to have IE, Finland, Belgium, and of course uh, UCL. We would have never thought of, if it was possible for one minute, of, of building a relevant European network uh, to advance education without the UK. Uh, our mission, first mission, and this is important because we're four founding partners, but the goal, the main goal, is to expand the network. One of the tasks we have for the next three years is to try and select, recognize, and incorporate to the network all the relevant initiatives being carried out by higher, higher education institutions, be it uh, uh, EdTech labs, learning innovation departments, EdTech accelerators, EdTech incubators, programs like Educate, there are not many like Educate, but all similar programs, trying to connect them and incorporate them to the network. Second uh, goal is to create, Alison will speak a little bit about this at the end, but an online platform to share cutting edge knowledge on EdTech, research papers, best practices, use cases, and try to share them also in a way that they can reach broad audiences. Sometimes research papers, you know, they're long, they're very technical. We try, we're going to aim to try to share all the knowledge of all these higher institutions and research centers in a way that they can reach teachers, researchers, entrepreneurs, schools, etc., etc. And the third goal is to unite all different stakeholders, universities, entrepreneurs, researchers, and industry. I know very well, I represent also, uh, I'm responsible of the EdTech Accelerator at IE University, that many, many times entrepreneurs struggle to find out who is a relevant decision maker or stakeholder inside a university to make a decision on their product, on their startup, on their new service, etc. So we think that uh, this platform and this network, what we're going to create, will also facilitate uh, this job for entrepreneurs, innovators, and tech producers. So our objectives here are summarized. Promoting, the first one will be to promote effective collaboration, experience, good practice, and knowledge exchange in the field of tech in Europe. To boost innovation in education, mainly tech-related. To foster tech entrepreneurship, promoting entrepreneurship in the field of education and training by supporting innovations. We think that this kind of cross-collaboration across Europe and beyond will also facilitate startups to gain quality and competitiveness, and also scale across the continent, and providing facts and data. We want to support EdTech entrepreneurs to gain this quality and competitiveness by providing them with the empirical findings of research on EdTech, trying to make sure that technology, uh, EdTech products, uh, always have as a main goal to uh, improve learning efficacy. These are summaries of our values, people in the center, as I said, technology supporting education and not the other way around, fostering tech entrepreneurship, international collaboration and synergy on different points of view. And now just uh, a few words on iUniversity, uh, very quickly. Uh, iUniversity is a um, uh, Spain-based uh, international uh, university. We were born uh, not many years ago in 1973 as a business school. We were the first business school to incorporate as mandatory in the curriculum a module, three-month three module 
in all programs. And we have, number one, we've been for the past five years always number one, number two, <laughs> online MBA. Uh, we also have, of course, uh, a flagship programs, face-to-face uh, -face presential, but I underline the online MBA just to, to, to try, try to express uh, how sophisticated and, and expert and how we, important for us is to keep updated with online blended uh, methodologies and new technologies. Now we are a university with five schools. And this is uh, the kind of uh, technology we're using and we want to uh, 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 keep in contact with the, with the wave of disruptive innovations of uh, entrepreneurs across Europe, blended and online uh, uh, learning models, uh, cutting edge distance learning tools. This is a picture of what we call the WOW room. WOW stands for uh, window on the world. It's uh, the most uh, advanced, we consider it that way, uh, uh, wall for distance learning. We, uh, it can uh, get 100 students there. Uh, but also, of course, project-based learning, team-based learning, collaborative learning tools for inside the class, but also uh, for visual collaboration, data collection analytics, and augmented or virtual reality. So this is also a heads up for all the entrepreneurs in the room and innovators. We are happy to share our knowledge. We have a program called iRockets, open for all entrepreneurs to share their products, models, and practice pilots and proof of concepts inside our institution. So now uh, I want to just say thank you and, and pass the word to, to uh, Rose Lacking, uh, a person whom I feel a, a tremendous amount of respect for, who is going to chair the next panel. Thank you very much. Hi everyone and welcome. This is such an exciting event. It's brilliant to be part of the launch of this important network because I am a big believer in Europe. <laughs> And it's great that we are hosting the European Network launch. So, we have two panels um, and a wonderful set of panellists. So, you'll be hearing from Vic, Mary, Angela and Katie in a little while. But first, we have a panel that's looking at the way that higher education can nurture educational technology entrepreneurship. And as a programme in a higher education institute trying to nurture edtech entrepreneurs, I think at Educate we feel we know just a little bit about this, but I think my guests know more. So I'd love to welcome to the stage Avi Wachowski, CEO of Mindset. Please do take a chair, Avi. We can sit wherever you like. Yes, I would sit over there. Yes. And Cyril Garnham, who is Head of Development for APSCO. I did check how to pronounce that first. Please, nice to see you. Thank you. Do you have a seat? Whoops. And Leila Guerra. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Who's Vice Dean of Programmes at Imperial Business School. Thank you. So I think we have a really expert panel here. And... Each of them are going to do a few minutes introduction of themselves and answering a particular question that we've posed. Um, and then we'll have a bit of discussion and be thinking. If there's time for questions, we'll take some questions at the end. So I'm going to start with Avi and say, can you give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself? And then I'd like you to tell me a bit about how Israel is leading this edtech ecosystem, because there's so much exciting work done in Israel. So how do you do that? Thank you, Rose. Uh, so first of all, Mindset is an EdTech innovation center. We try really to bring uh, change to education through entrepreneurship, and, and we run different kind of uh, programs, 
accelerator and so forth. Um, I think what's unique in mindset is the combination of um, users and startups and, and research that comes together, I think similar to educate in a way. Yes. And asking about Israel, actually, I think I'm not a representative of the government. We're a private organization. I think uh, the, the good thing the government is doing is, is by don't do too much, like uh, not disturbing the market to, to, to act. And uh, we have a very dynamic uh, startup scene in general in, in many other domains, and, and we have the startup culture. And also, uh, I, I think the, the, the teachers uh, are not very disciplined. Like, uh, it, in general, Israeli culture is not very disciplined, so <laughs> sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a bad thing, but in this sense, it's a good thing because they are really uh, happy to test new stuff and, and really open to, to new experiments. And we have in mindset different programs of early adopters for educators that really are part of the development process. Um, I think the, the downside in Israel is, is the fact that we don't have a real market because it's, it's, uh, most of our education is public and uh, very highly regulated, so it's, it's, the market is very limited. Uh, but the upside, uh, in, entrepreneurs are looking from day one uh, globally. And uh, although they are doing this mainly from business reasons, I think there is very good pedagogical uh, uh, upsides for this perspective because uh, in the end of the day, education should be global. And, and going back to the Europe thing here, I think it's, it's, it's part of the same narrative, which is very important. Thank you, Abby. And I'm going to come to Cyril next. And I've got a question for you that I, I'm fascinated to know the answer to. Um, so as APSCO has been taken up by more and more campuses, who are the hardest people to convince that technology is useful in teaching and learning. I'll introduce with some concept about what we do, just in 10 seconds. Excellent. We're a Paris-based mobile startup. We work on student experience and student engagement. Uh, our customers, our partners are the universities, our end users are the students. Now, the thing is that I think that in higher education, everyone is convinced and know that they need tech products, right? The, the thing is that the real question will be which product should I need at what time? Because you can take a huge university with a great team and a lot of budget. They cannot launch sets of dozens of, start, of startup services at the same time. And they're going to have to choose. And the question of how we choose, I'll give you some suspense. I hope to get to, get, to, get to it later in the panel. Um, second part, to give a more down-to-earth example, because we, we work with a lot of universities, we work with 17 institutions. In many, uh, in many universities, there's a, an IT department that, that has resources, they have developers, and sometimes they believe that they can develop internally whatever they see other startups doing, which, which technically they can, because they do have developers. There are two problems. First, well, it would take some time, mm. and second, they're not meant to be a, an internal incubator. They're not meant to be creating many companies inside a, an IT department that has to manage so many students and HR and, and, uh, and staff. Um, just to conclude, the, um, the main point on which we would like to talk regarding your question would be that in a university, in higher education in general, every single department of the university, including the people who do not interact on a daily basis with, with the students, must be aware of the students' needs. And that's 
a big deal of work in every single university. And once it's done, it's very beneficial. Absolutely. And do you find it's necessary to find champions in universities to communicate effectively with, to bring them on board so that they can advocate to their colleagues about the use of technology? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, if I take example of our customers, our partners, um, onboarding matters at the very beginning. When, when we uh, launch a service in a, new, in a new institution, the very first part of it is to onboard every single person, who, every single stakeholder who will have something, something to do with the project. Even if, even if you will possibly intervene in a year and a half, everyone has to be aware of what's going on and of what, what are the uh, different projects in the, the university. Thank you. And Leila, you travel the world, you nurture entrepreneurs, but you also use technology. What do you see that works really well? What do you think works less well from your perspective? Um, let me introduce first the institution yes. and I'll come back to that question. Um, good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, as uh, it was mentioned by Rose, I'm from Imperial College Business School. Imperial College is a STEM university, I would say one of the top ten in the world. And uh, we've been for quite some years uh, leading on innovation and on technology. The business school itself is a bit younger. Um, in our current format, we're roughly around 20 years, but we do have the DNA and the spirit of the, of the institution, and we're quite STEM-driven. We have our own EdTech center, and we've always tried to embrace technology and innovation as, as part of who we are. And that does shape our programs, and um, it also shapes the kind of students we attract, uh, and I'll come back to, to your question on that, and the kind of research we do within the business school. Um, and um, I, I think we, we've been quite successful on that, both on, on, on challenges and uh, understanding what has worked really well and uh, where we, we need to just uh, keep going. Um, and just to mention a few things that have worked really well is um, when we've been able to uh, look at technology in the way that works for us. Higher education is a very different area, segment, and uh, we don't have customers. We have stakeholders in very, very many different ways, and uh, technology for us needs to be shaped uh, uh, differently, I would say. And learning from that um, has brought us very big successes. Uh, we've introduced holograms as part of our uh, teaching delivery, and uh, we don't look global anymore necessarily as traveling to everywhere. We, we still do that. But we are now in a position where we can bring in key speakers from anywhere in the world via holograms. Um, we're using AI uh, to look at student performance and how you can predict it. Um, of course, you've heard about the chatbots, the MOOCs, uh, online programs. We have all of that. We have actually 500 students in our online programs at the moment. Um, and when we look at our entrepreneurs, uh, we have managed to, uh, to convey that spirit about using college, not just a business school, as, a, as an accelerator. But what hasn't worked so well? Um, and um, I think I would, I would mention, if, I, if you... If you allow me, one example. Um, we've always worked with champions, but when we haven't been able to work on the transition between the championing moment, the one or first two years, and then making it business as usual. That has been a challenge because you can have champions for a while, but at some point you need to understand that this is now part of who you are. And um, that's a big learning for us. I can come back to that later. 
The second um, uh, area of development that I have seen is uh, uh, seeing the difference between researching in technology and teaching in technology. And some business schools, I think, uh, look at uh, consumers of technology. What mm. kind of new uh, technological concept are we introducing in the classroom? Let's get the students to do coding. Um, let's get them to do blockchain studies. And we're having to address the fact that we want our students to manage technologies. They're working in a company that has technology Im Im embedded. And that transition um, has also been quite interesting. That's interesting, isn't it, where the discipline yes. makes a big difference in higher education to the way the technology knits in to the existing structure. I, of course, have lots of questions, but I really want to throw it open to the audience because... You don't often get the chance to ask questions of a panel that brings such expertise and diverse expertise. So I can't see very yet. I can see enough to see when hands are. But so, does anybody have a question? If so, raise your hand. Um, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Renchen, and I'm from uh, UCL as a postgraduate student, um, and I'm from uh, a very contradictory area. Um, uh, it's part of China. It's called Tibet. So, uh, in some of those areas, because you're all aware that um, internet access is not that easy, so how do you think that we can go over those barriers? Because some part of the world is restricted, as you guys are aware. That's a really challenging question. Interesting. Who would like to take Thank that you. one first? Difficult question. Well, I oh. Actually, oh, yes, sorry. Uh, just to, to, to clarify the question. Is this a problem of, of regulation of the government or problem of infrastructure that you're... Um, uh, sorry, it's more about regulations. Okay, so I can say that in our experience, it's really required to, to modify the products. Like, uh, um, whoever succeed from our alumni to, to mm. really work in China had to really learn the culture deeply and adapt the solutions. I think it's doable. I think it's, it's not... Um, it's not easy, but it's also not something that uh, I feel that they sold their uh, soul to the uh, evil power. Like they, they really understood the limitation. Uh, it's about coding or about math learning. Uh, so, so in those areas, for sure, the adoption can be done. It's more challenging in, in, in other areas uh, of, of ethical entrepreneurship, like humanities or so, which actually we, we hardly see any potential to work with, with, the, with those areas. That's really interesting. Um, and for me, as a scholar of context for many years, I think it does highlight the fact that the context where the technology is being used makes a huge difference to how you need to go about interacting with those audiences. As you travel around the world, what's your take on this, Leila? Um, it is a challenging question, I have to say. <laughs> I, I like to take an approach where, via technology, we can reach much bigger audiences now, and we can make education much more accessible. But we can't forget that the technology in place needs to be local, or at least it needs to be via a partner that understands deeply the market. Um, and trying to use a technological supplier as a one-size-fits-all hasn't uh, always brought the success. Not just necessarily because the infrastructure doesn't work, but also because of the um, political elements around that. Um, when we've worked with Chinese institutions and we come with a big US supplier, and potentially, especially now, they would say, I don't want to necessarily give my information to, to that company. Um, and so it's, it's working around global alliances and uh, reaching local partners 
Um, it's uh, adapting to their needs, as, a bit as, as, as my colleague was saying as well. Um, and then it's finding a solution uh, that also allows them to come to, come to us when, when, when it's, of course, possible. Um, in, in that particular region, I can understand uh, the, the, the challenges, but I, I would approach it in that way. And it has been successful so far. That's really interesting. It's fascinating, isn't it? Technology allows us to scale. It allows us to be global. But, of course, local is so important. Sarah, what's your take on this in terms of the need to address the local needs, even though you're scaling internationally? Uh, once again, I'm go going to go beyond the question. That's fine. Um, <laughs> local needs are, when we mean local in, in our spectrum, it goes even beyond a country. It really goes to every single institution. I'm going to give a French perspective, but I think that you can even relate in the UK. I'm going to try to help you relate uh, in France, we have a diverse type of institutions. We have business schools who have their very strong identities. Uh, we have universities who are mostly uh, public. We have engineering schools who specialize in engineering. Uh, in the UK, something, you invented something really nice, which is the uh, National Student Survey that we don't have yet. And this, this NSS uh, is something, something we need in France because it, it's helped, it would help every single institution. Mm. Mm. define its identity even better. Uh, the idea is that as an institution, I have my very own identity. And with this identity, I'm going to craft a student journey. And as a student who goes through Imperial or who goes through UCL, is not going to have the same journey, right? Because if I'm going to ask about the difference between the two, the two universities, whatever you go, you're going to answer, the, the foundation of your answer will be, will be related to the values of the university. I, do you agree on the fact that UCL and Imperial have different values, different s standpoints? And it's, more, it's much more than just having different programs. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know. I'd, I think it is true. Each university has a different culture, a different set of values. There are things that are in common, aren't there? But there are differences, you're right. And when, is, when, a, uh, when a, a higher education institution tries to partner with a startup, our role is to help you define the student journey and to help you keep on perfecting it according to your own set of values. And, and the thing is that well, I was using, using the term partner rather than customer because this is something that every single startup should, about HE should understand. It's that when we become partners, you're allowing, allowing us to have an impact on the very, on the student, on the student experience mm. and then mm. this very identity of your, of your university. And there's a huge question of trust that, that goes on. And when we realized that, we tripled our, the number, number of people in customer success in our teams, and just to give you some context. Um, I hope I have answered your question. It's really interesting, <laughs> yes. And I think it, 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 I obviously talk to a lot of startups and SMEs, and, and many of those who are working in higher education um, are finding, I understand, uh, that it's not just a product or a service, it is very much that whole piece. So it is trying to help people think in the way that they need to think in order to embrace the technology. So there's quite a lot of support that needs to be provided and that seems to be reflected in what you're saying. Quite right. 
if I can just add to that, and um, I, I, I'm seeing more and more of that, mm. but uh, one thing that higher education uh, institutions sometimes do have is uh, quite a conservative approach to innovation. Um, no. <laughs> Surely not. Universities, um, they're at the cutting edge. Well, that's an example of a disagreement I was talking about. And, um, when, when we talk about startups, um, your first approach would be, oh, but have they been tested? And uh, what kind of startup? And uh, um, can I see, is, you know, are they partnering with anyone like me? And I think that's where I'm seeing a little bit of a change where we, we and, I, and my recommendation is we have to be more courageous. We have to be more brave. We have to be more bold mm. um, because the market is evolving. Um, technology is part of our lives and uh, not even millennials anymore. Gen Zs are coming to the classroom and they have different expectations. Um, and so uh, at least uh, I can see where we are now... Um, experimenting uh, and uh, pioneering, piloting, use all those terms uh, so everyone feels safe. Um, mm -hmm. But with, with small startups that maybe a few years ago you wouldn't have even looked at because they wouldn't have been tested and proved. Yeah. And uh, I'm talking about a project that is by two students and come to you and say, can we... Um, as an example, Unibody, some of you might know it, might know it. We were like, yeah, let's let's go ahead, let's try it. What can we lose? And and that's my recommendation mm. on on your point. We well, just need to be more more bolder. Of course, for for the context, we uh, we did a pilot with IE uh, using the IE rockets program. I don't know if it's involved, how far it is involved with EETN. And our very first customer was um, our very first school we worked with. We worked with them because our CEO graduated from it. And there's a virtuous circle that we notice in France that top universities and schools are usually those with the most startup partners. And it's really a virtuous circle. Nice. It's like we're a good university, we're a good school, and we're going to be brave. As you said, we're going to be brave and try to take risks and try to give good service to our students, and we're going to, work to, to be more uh, open to new services, to new technology. I agree. I think bravery is really important. I think educate's very brave, don't you? <laughs> Trying to do something different. Avi, I love coming to Israel for many, many reasons. Um, I love the fact that it's a very entrepreneurial culture. Uh, and I also love the fact that people are, people's approach to education is very sophisticated. I always think you get the best questions, the hardest questions when you're talking to. So what do you think in terms of your, the startups you work with? How do they most successfully pitch to higher education? Because you've got quite a high bar, I think. Well, I think, I think mainly um, they are sometimes have sort of a blindness. They, they don't really get <laughs> those things that you were speaking beforehand of the limits, and, and they're challenging the limits, and sometimes it's, it's the, the, the outcome is terrible, but sometimes it it's really yeah. defines something new that wasn't, wasn't there beforehand. And I, I think the, probably the secret sauce is the fact that uh, in Israeli culture, kids are getting to be responsible in a very young ages, like mm. the youth movements mm. or military or any other stuff like that, that, that really give them the lots of, of responsibility in, in, let's say, in the age of, of 17 or 16, or, or and uh, so they don't have really a good understanding of, of, uh, of, of uh, reality, how things work, and, and sometimes this is the right thing to do in, in this sense. Uh, Interesting. Any more questions from the audience? Otherwise, I should, oh, yeah, oh, gosh, lots. Yes, one here and then one behind. 
Thank you. Hello, I'm Lisa Carey. I'm head of uh, EdTech at the School of Medicine at Imperial. And the fact that Leila and I have ah. never met tells you a little bit about the culture of collaboration. Doesn't that happen all the time? <laughs> um, I, so I think entrepreneurship is probably perceived as part of business studies. So how do the panels see the value of teaching entrepreneurship and EdTech as part of the core curriculum possibly? Is it, is it feasible to scale it up to the whole cohort? Is it discipline specific? Is it generic? How do you, how would you approach question. this? I think it's a great question. Um, like, there are people who think that, that entrepreneurship is, is, is not something that you can learn. You have to be born. In, and, and, and I think it's, it's uh, I disagree, like in general speaking, but it's like art. I think everyone in this room probably did something with art in his life, and uh, maybe mm, there is no Picasso in the room probably, but there are some, some range of, of artists here. And I think the same goes to entrepreneurship and, and, uh, and you can really make significant shortcuts if you, if you learn methodology. Like it's not, uh, it's not a magic, it's not something that you have to be a star in order to make, to make it happen and, and, uh, and it's proven. Like I think there's the success rate of startups who are working according to methodology is much higher than, than the ones who have to fail by themselves. Mm, interesting. Leila? Um, yes, I can, I'm happy to take that answer. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm a strong believer that innovation should be in everything you teach. Um, and uh, um, having a course only on innovation potentially just keeps it short. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, and that's how you design should, that's just how you design should be. Are you, going back to the culture, is your institution a culture that embraces that? On entrepreneurship, I'm, I, I have a mixed response if you allow me to. We do have a master's in entrepreneurship and that master's in entrepreneurship is fully focused on if you want to be an entrepreneur, that's the fully degree based for that. But our students, at least uh, we have two, over 2,000 postgraduate students in the business school, come in many shapes and forms. And some of them want to be entrepreneurs, and others want to be socialpreneurs. And others might not think about being an entrepreneur now, but they might do in the future. Um, and, uh, and that's for, uh, for us to discuss what should be in the curriculum. Uh, the MBA curriculums mostly are getting larger and larger. Uh, and at some point, we as a school need to decide what is for us the core. Um, if you ask me, entrepreneurship in all its ways should be part of the core. Um, and uh, we, have a we have a term at the moment that is called the STEM-BA. Uh, the, the MBA should evolve towards technology, uh, embracing the engineering fo focus and the science focus and should include entrepreneurship. But that's because, and as, as you rightly know, that's because that's imperial. That's who we are. Mm. I do know that in other business schools, their focus might be in, in a different way. And that's fair enough because what we do need to tell our students is, this is what you're going to get if you come to us. And if you are uh, coming to Imperial, you will find innovation and you will find entrepreneurship. Um, if you're not looking for that, that's fair enough. Maybe we're not your institution. Maybe that's, that's another place. But that, that would be my answer. Um, I potentially have to say at this point that I am an I alumni. And uh, <laughs> I worked there for five years and um, as Director of Innovation and Development. So potentially the fact that I had uh, entrepreneurship in their curriculum already shaped my belief in a way. <laughs> I think it's such an interesting question. And this is a higher education panel. But I think we need to start entrepreneurship even in schools. And one of the schools I'm a governor at, we've started an entrepreneurship program in the school because we just want to support people. Cyril, where did you get your entrepreneurial mindset from? Is it born? Did you, where did you get nurtured? <laughs> well, I'm not part of the founding team, but I'll try to, to, to answer. 
Uh, I think it's important that uh, universities help their alumni first. Uh, mm. men in the U.S., they're really good at having a network of all the alumni who founded companies and maintaining this network. Um, it's something that we have much to learn from. Uh, in a French perspective, once again, um, the business school in France, a lot of them focus a lot as well on teaching entrepreneurship as a specific degree. And undergrad programs have started integrating it as well as a mandatory, as a mandatory course. And to go beyond that, just to speak as a human being, I really agree with you. I think that it's something that could be taught even in high school. Mm. And it's a, reflex that, it's, a re it's, it's a reflex that we should have much earlier in life, much way before we choose whether we want to study economics or maths yes. or medicine. I agree. Thank you. Now, there was another question. Oh, you've got the microphone. Fantastic. Uh, yes. Ask away. Um, my name is Natalia Yashchuk. I work for Pearson. Um, so you talked about technology enabling you to scale, um, to be more accessible. But I wonder what, what do you think it allows you to do in terms of teaching 21st century skills? And, you know, in a way, entrepreneurship, you could call it that. But does it help you teach those or does it actually stop you from teaching that mm. if you don't have that face-to-face -face contact, for example? Another great question. So how can technology help us with the 21st skills teaching? Who'd like to start off on that one? Oh, Layla. I'm happy to. Sorry. <laughs> um, I think it helps you in two ways. Um, our, the students we are now receiving, all of us, uh, the, as I said, millennials, Gen Z, they expect technology as part of their life and their way of consuming information has changed, um, which means for us teaching also needs to change. I always tell uh, my faculty, if you go into a classroom and think you can teach Porter in the way I was taught Porter many years ago, that doesn't change, that, that, that's not there anymore because students go into YouTube or into any of the uh, thousand available uh, offers online and they can find the theory. But the most valuable asset we have is the brain of the academic, their research and their thinking. And if we can convert the classroom experience into this exciting environment where the research and the, the way an academic thinks is being translated into the classroom and use technology to move the theoretical concept, or at least some of them, as I said, Porter, forgive me, Porter, um, into the online space, I think we're going to be doing two things. We are now, in the flipped classroom methodology, we're now answering not only what the candidates, the students expect from us, but we're also making the best use of our most valuable asset. Um, that's where I can see technology can help us. Where I don't think technology helps us is if we're thinking that the classroom experience is dead, forgive me for saying that, and that we just can put everything into an online MOOC and that is the replacement. I don't think that's, and uh, seven years ago there was a fear about that or at least a discussion. I don't think that's going to happen. And I would always recommend that the face-to-face -face element, the networking part, the, the talking to each other part will not be replaced by technology. So important. Cyril, Avi, would you like to comment? I, I don't think it's about technology. I think it's, it's much more about culture. Mm. And in a way, I would say that, that uh, we should look at learning as, as, a new, as a new science. Like it's learning 2.0. It's not the same learning that was here, let's say, a decade ago. And, and, uh, we have to redefine it. Maybe, maybe the, the new definition is not including online at all, but, but it's, it's, it's something that's embedded in a world that we know that we have access to online and we have access to alternative way. But much deeper than this, we, we, we have new ways of expression. Yeah. We have new, new ways to define quality. We have new ways to 
define memorizing, uh, literacy, reading, writing, and, and I think this is a huge revolution that uh, might happen also with the assistance of entrepreneurs because they, they have this ability, but, but it's, it's, it's bigger than, than just the, the ethic movement or the entrepreneurial movement. I can see one question here and one question down am I, oh, am I over okay there. to ask? Yes, go. Okay, sorry, hi. Um, my name is oh, Mokta. Um, I'm a teacher of English. Um, I am also the founder of a startup called Progresso. We were part of the uh, cohort six of the UCL Educate program. <laughs> um, so, quick question for you, Leila. Uh, you touched on something that I thought was really interesting. You said that uh, you know institutions have to be brave. Uh, and as a founder, that's always trying to talk to institutions and you know trying to get them to engage with us. It's tough. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that catch twenty two. They need the evidence. We need the schools before we get the evidence. How do we get the schools? What, what's your advice? Network. <laughs> um, my advice is to, I always say this, know your audience. Uh, know who is it that you, who's the decision maker, who is the people you have to influence, and then you do use your networks. Uh, um, it's a, higher education is a very small world. We all know each other. Um, mm. and, uh, and reaching out uh, cannot just happen, for me, at least for me, on, in, in one area. I'm going to go to the EdTech director, do that, but in the meantime, speak to an alumni, speak to the dean, we're quite accessible most of the times, and uh, I've seen that work quite successfully. Um, but if you don't have that multi-layer contact, potentially your great idea will reach uh, just only one point, and, and that might be an open door, or it might be a closed one. Uh, that would be one that would be one recommendation. Okay. Good. And we've got a question up here, and I know we've got a question there, and I'm going to do those two questions, and then we will have to close down, because we've got another lovely panel for you to listen to. So, Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jen Person from Defend Digital Me. We work in England for um, data privacy and uh, rights for Very young important. people in education. So, uh, Leila, you mentioned innovation. And last year, our information commissioner said innovation does not need to come at the cost of privacy. And Cyril mentioned trust, and uh, you talked about data analytics. Is there good practice that you think you would like to sort of champion? What does good practice look like in terms of data analytics um, and privacy or good practice? What does that mean for a student? And does there, um, is, are there any limitations on the kind of data you would use in data analytics? So things like sexual orientation, religion, ethnicity, which are used in many of the, the kind of higher uh, education data analytics programs we have today in the UK. So on, on that note, my recommendation is as you grow your innovation team, grow also your regulation team. You really need to understand particularly well in the UK, what are the laws, what are the regulations, what are the policies. Uh, and as we are all adapting to GDPR, as we're all adapting to freedom of information requests, and as we're all adapting to all this data that we have and how to manage it, it is really important that you understand, at least for us uh, at Imperial, that we, under, that we have a very strong framework and a good understanding of what is it that we can actually do. Um, that's the first point. The second point is informing your students and being very, very transparent. Now, of course, that once you have the regulations right, you have their permission, you have their authorization, but also informing them exactly of what you're doing and why they're doing it and making sure that they are permitting that. 
And the third part, and I know we have to be very quick, uh, is uh, um, one point that you mentioned around diversity and inclusion and, and data that is truly important to us at the moment, mostly, um, but that needs to be handled by country. Because things that you can ask in France yeah. are illegal to be asked in the UK uh, and potentially would be a, a suing case in the US, uh, just to give you an example. And that's, again, as global institutions, it is our duty to know exactly what we can ask, but also to manage candidates that might be quite offended if you're asking them for, can you tell me your sexual orientation? Um, and, uh, and, and that's your communication strategy around that. So policy, having a good, really strong team there, communication, and managing the cultural differences. Brilliant answer, and I, I, I will, before we go to the last question, I will just take a moment because I think this is such an important issue and it relates to ethics, and we saw this morning that huge donation had been given to Oxford University, £150 million, biggest donation they've ever received. So that upper centre humanities that is going to focus largely on AI and ethics. And disappointingly, I've yet to see anybody bring education up in that debate about that £150 million donation. And that's really painful um, because education should be the top of everybody's agenda when we talk about these things. And that's why we launched the Institute for Ethical Artificial Intelligence in Education. And Tom, where are you? Tom is over there, is our um, lead on this work. And if anybody's interested in what we're doing with the Institute, do please talk to Tom. Because like entrepreneurship, I think ethics needs to be in the mindset of everyone, right from the word go. I, I used to teach in a, in a computer science department and there'd be this little blob course called ethics that was kind of like a bolt-on. And it has, it's gone. It has to be right from the word go. Right, last question and then we will stop. Which I think was this gentleman here. Yeah, we'll get you a microphone. And then um, hello. we'll have a final word from each of the panelists and then we'll hand over to the next Hello, uh, I'm Batuan. I'm founder of CyberRabbit. We are a completely decentralized education organization and we explore the role of technology in, in expanding storytelling. We, teach, we explore technology with kids and we teach them what is cryptocurrency, decentralization, artificial intelligence. So my question for you is that how do you think people like us who are you know, lucky to be in a peaceful environment in first world countries can use technology to take education, free education to remote corners of the planet? Because there's actually, you know, there are a lot of kids and a lot of people are actually running away from bombs and their homes are being destroyed. They don't even have a, a single second to think about education. So what do you think we can do, even tonight, you know, to take this, take this free education to the remote corners of our planet? Great question. Well, maybe I can relate uh, from our own experience, uh, not, not in these uh, dramatic uh, cases, but, but dramatic enough. We have some experience working with the Bedouin community uh, in the south of Israel, where Mindset headquarters is located, and, and lots of them are coming from a nomadic culture with no education structured and so forth. And, and in our experience, uh, the interaction happens very easy. Like, uh, it looks like you're coming from another century when you come with, with technology, but uh, they have sort of a frog lip uh, and, and they adapt it uh, very fast and sometimes much better than uh, kids that grew in, in a much, uh, let's say, peaceful uh, environment because they, are, they are, have this urge of, of being creative because this is part of their surviving. 
So, uh, and uh, I can say more practical uh, aspect, uh, we had a huge success with maker movement based uh, solutions in, in, in this community because it's in a way it's a bridge between the tangible and, and the virtual uh, world. Thank you. I'm going to thank everybody on the panel because that's been great. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for the excellent questions. So I'm now going to hand over to my colleague Mary Kunnett-Cook, who is chairing the next panel. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. I'll come out your way. So uh, have, a, have a seat, everyone. Uh, we, ha we have a bit of a hard act to follow there. Thank you um, for the first panel for a really interesting uh, start off there. We've got a, we've got a slightly different uh, topic here, which is how does um, higher education use edtech to enhance teaching and learning specifically rather than entrepreneurship? But I just wanted to get a feel. So, so can I just find out who you are out there? So how, how many tech entrepreneurs do we have uh, in, the, in the audience? Okay, quite a good, good smattering of entrepreneurs there. Uh, how many are you um, students uh, doing kind of technology-related... Okay, a few, a few students as well. And academics or people who work in universities? And who are the rest of you? <laughs> um, who, who else? Researchers? Yeah, okay, a couple of... Oh, okay, that's Rose and Alison. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, anyway, well, that, that's, um, that's really helpful to... Um, uh, I see at least one journalist and podcaster. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> um, now, we have got a fantastic um, panel this evening, um, and I'd like you to welcome um, Angela McFarlane, who is a trustee of the Education Development Trust. Um, she's actually a fantastically distinguished uh, practitioner in... Would it be right to say kind of engagement in learning broadly is your thing? She's also a conservationist and a, and a, a botanist or a biologist, biologist, but biologist, but with a kind of tendency to a bit of a green. A bit of a, exactly, that's rather what I thought. Um, but she's also been a, a teacher and she's an author. She was head of the Graduate School of Education at um, Bristol. She was on the governing body uh, at the University of um, Middlesex. Um, and she told me just as we were um, as we arrived this evening, she's just finished a project with uh, with Nuffield, um, which is looking at what we can say about computers in learning. Something that you, maybe you'll say a bit more about that. Um, to be honest, I've only covered a fraction of her achievements. You should look her up. It's quite, uh, quite impressive. Uh, we also have Katie Fryatt, who's um, chief executive and founder of Learn It, uh, which is a major event, which I think it aims to kind of embrace the entire learning ecosystem. It sounds really, please invite me next time if I'm allowed to come. Um, uh, she's, she's out there to be bold and inclusive and disruptive. Uh, which sounds quite exciting to me. Um, and I think she has a feeling that we're kind of getting education wrong for preparing people for the 21st century. Have I, have I, have I read that right, um, Katie? So no doubt she'll say a bit more about that. Um, then uh, we also have Vic Vucic, who's Chief Innovation Officer at Digital Promise Global and Executive Director of the Learner Variability Project. Um, he seems to me to be a kind of through-and-through through education scientist and technologist, 
uh, active, I think, in kind of tackling infrastructure um, and edtech through open courseware and access to education through um, uh, projects and technology in underdeveloped countries sounds, sounds really interesting. I mean, what a panel. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this fantastic, uh, fantastic panel here. Um, now, we're going to follow um, a similar format. Um, so I'm going to start with, um, with Angela, who you might want to embellish the introduction if I've got it wrong or uh, whatever. But um, the question for you is, where do you see EdTech having potential for the most impact um, on learning and teaching in, in formal education? Okay. Thanks, Mary. Um, well, the potential, I think, is there for completely rethinking what we look for as evidence of mastery and expertise. And this, for me, goes to the heart of what it means to be educated. Um, and if I may, I'm going to draw some examples from what's been happening in recent years in the UK at the, in the school system. And I'm going to explain, because I think those policies are creeping into higher education and they're making it more and more difficult to do the kinds of things that the previous panel was talking about. And Avi actually began to kind of lift the corner of the blanket over the elephant in the room. Uh, I think <laughs> some of the remarks that he was making. Um, because we, in, our, in Western society, we do like hero worship. We venerate the individual performance. And if you start thinking about whether just how individual those performances are, you very often find quite quickly that the manifestation of that creativity, that expertise, was not purely down to the individual. Even if you think about the, the author of the, the award-winning novel, they almost certainly worked closely with an excellent editor who has just as much um, creativity in their role, but who you will never know the name of. Um, and that, that's just one example. Okay, so the, the, the hero is actually a bit of a myth, but we all rather love it. And Leila was just talking about the idea of the, you know, if you like, the hero academic, the person who has the knowledge, who has the understanding, who is the expert in the room. And whilst I don't wish to detract from the value of that expertise and that knowledge and that learning, the idea that we do think of the expert in the room and the others in the room is actually quite unhelpful. And it's where I fear Vygotsky may have got it wrong. The expert other is a really important part of the learning experience, but that does not demote the other people in the room as aids to your learning and to the group knowledge building. Any teacher will admit they've been asked some of the most difficult probing questions about their area of expertise by people who know very little. Because people who don't know ask really, really difficult questions, and they're really difficult to explain. Uh, very difficult to find the answers to. So the idea that as a student, the most important interactions for you are with the expert lecturer actually impedes many of the things that EdTech is really, really good at, which is helping community-based learning. And community-based learning is so incredibly powerful, but it's also incredibly disruptive because we have a system... And yes, of course, you'll always find exceptions to this. But essentially, a degree is awarded to an individual. 
a classification of a degree is awarded to an individual. It is very important to a university system to be able to identify what that one person has done. And so we still rely very, very heavily on what an individual can do when sequestered at a desk in a room under invigilation with just what they have in their head. Now, actually, in any role you care to think of outside educational assessment, that is not what you want. You do not want somebody who will restrict what they can do to what they have in their head. I don't know about you, but if I go to see my GP, I rather like it when she looks up what the latest treatments for the condition I may or may not have are and what the best drugs might be. I'm quite, I'm quite um, reassured by the fact that she's not relying solely on the last time the poor woman got to do a bit of, of professional development on the latest drugs. You know, this, this notion of the individual and what they have in their head being the model that we should be accrediting is really, really unhelpful. And it is a huge break on our ability to move education forward. In the UK, we've just seen a move away from anything other than terminal assessment for school-based examinations. It's a disaster. And I warn you, what's happening in schools is happening in universities. The TEF, the Teaching Excellence Framework, fitting everybody to a model of what good teaching looks like. If there was one way to teach well, we'd all know it by now and we'd all be doing it. There is not one way to get teaching right. And it's also, and this is perhaps controversial, it's also quite dangerous to rely on things like the National Student Survey. Because frankly, as a learner, you don't always know what the best ways to teach you are. Think about the students on the streets in Oxford because they were going to withdraw mass lectures. Because actually sitting in a lecture is a really easy way to think you're learning. It's much harder to really do something that is actually, actually helping you learn. And Rose made the mention of the uh, groundbreaking news today about this setting up of this new humanities-driven institute for ethics in artificial intelligence. If we think we've got a problem now, trying to work out how we stick labels on people working with other people, how the heck are we going to manage to work out what mastery looks like when the other part of the system is actually an artificial intelligence? Fantastic. And um, as, uh, speaking as someone who uh, wrote a speech for my boss in about 2000 and three or four, predicting that we would have, um, I think I called them e-assessment GCSEs by 2009, you know, that, and, and that, that we're still doing it with, <laughs> with quill pen. So, so that idea that you're looking, you know, that the evidence of mastery and expertise is still basically a quill pen, as you say, a person with what they've got in their head in the moment. Um, have you seen examples of technology-based um, ways, I'm going to call it ways of assessing rather than assessment, because we kind of, you know, we equate that with the idea of an exam, and, which is not necessarily the best way to, to test. Have, have you seen examples of that that you think um, need, you know, need more attention and knowledge? Well, one of the promising things, of course, is that if you actually want to simply test competence, technologies are incredibly good. 
Um, so, for example, take an, take an example in mathematics. Unless you've got to the point where you've automated your understanding of arithmetic functions, so you can, you, know, you can add and subtract and divide and things in, you know, without even thinking about it, it's a little bit like when you're learning to drive a, a, a gear-driven car. If you can't change gear without even thinking about it, the rest of your driving is going to suffer. And similarly, if you can't perform arithmetic functions without thinking about <coughs> it, your advanced mathematics is going to suffer. So luckily, we can easily test and support the learning of that arithmetic competence using computer-based systems. We don't need to waste the time of teachers in schools hand-marking sheets of problems, um, by, by which time the kid has forgotten why they, got, why they put the answer they did, um, every, you know, nobody cares. Um, you've got no. You've lost the opportunity to intervene and, and stop a, a misunderstanding. So there are ways in which we can use technology to assess competence that matters in very quick and efficient ways. But when it comes to the, the you know, the assessing the broader skills, um, as in fact the last panel ended up by saying, you can't be talking to one another. You know, and there is a reason why doctoral examinations involve a viva. And in, in all the years I've been working in education, I've come down to the, I've come to the conclusion it really comes down to a really, really simple notion. Can you differentiate between a belief and an evidence-based opinion? And if you hold an evidence-based opinion, can you explain why the evidence you're using brings you to the opinion that you hold? And when I hear problem, you know, when I hear people cry, discrying the fact that oh, students are downloading essays from the internet and so on, and handing them in and getting credits for things for work that's not their own, I'm thinking, really, you're setting assessments for your students that are so lacking in innovation or creativity that I can just download something from the internet and you can't tell the difference, really? Yeah, a <clears throat> uh, uh, very good point, and I think we should. We should all hold on to that idea about competence that matters. I, uh, I'm going to steal that and, uh, and use it. In the, I'm, a, I'm a magpie for, um, for, good, for good ideas. Um, now, Katie, um, how about you? What, uh, what examples would you like to highlight? Something really innovative that's um, uh, caught your eye using EdTech in higher education that you've seen uh, around the world? Sure. Um, thanks, Mary. So I, I, just to clarify, I don't profess to be an expert. I think probably 99% of people in this room are much greater qualified than I am. But okay, I that's, a very, that's a very female stance to take. I'd just like to... That's terrible. It's don't, to I have two girls, don't by apologising. Yes. We think you're an expert. That's why you're here. So, yeah, and very female British as well. typecast. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, don't apologise. We, we but love you. But what I have learnt is the ability to listen to others. And I, I do think... You know, one, Mary, Mary sort of in the introduction talked about the fact that I think that, I mean, education is broken and all these big labels I don't necessarily agree with, but I, I do believe there's a massive gap between education, in inverted commas, and the real world. And I think there are lots of wonderful examples of tech in higher education that probably people in this room know about. There are companies doing good things. I, I know JISC and Emerge just published a great report. I think, Mary, you were involved yeah. in that. Um, they talk about Aula, Bibliotech, they give really good case studies and examples. So if you want those tangible ones, I would go there. Uh, the company that I find personally super interesting right now isn't actually necessarily hugely innovative. It's not sexy and sparkly and it's not doing something with some huge data algorithm, or it probably is, but that's not the core of it. The business is called Handshake. 
handshake, and I'll, I might even well, I'll do my best to explain it as best I understood it when I found out about them in the US earlier this year, is they basically, it's like a LinkedIn for graduates that very specifically matches uh, students in their final years of college looking for a job. So they directly match people, students looking for jobs with employers. That, that is just a common sense thing that should exist, isn't it? And they've, they've built it out in the US. They've just raised a huge amount of funding back end of last year and the rumour is they might expand to Europe. I am hopeful myself that they do because I have two girls. I hope that they get to use that platform because I never did. I probably, you know, I spent ages on career computers where you just click the next thing and every time it came up with fish farmer I'm not a fish farmer to be clear <laughs> and my best friend always got undertaker so I think you know if we can take that career software platform you know what a wonderful thing and, the, and they've got really interesting things where they do um, on campus meetups so a recruiter could go to university x they could run workshops interviews speed dating it makes it easier for the employers trying to get good grads in it makes it much more accessible for the grads trying to get in to to great firms and i th for me it does something really important which is it democratizes opportunity you know it, it doesn't matter what your background is we talked on the last panel about network not everyone has a network not everyone has an uncle or a cousin or a friend or a sister they can call and say oh can you introduce me to xyz and i love the fact that handshake does it, it takes some of that away um so that's the company that i love but linking just really quickly to the last panel on entrepreneurship one thing i find interesting as well is um harvard the harvard institute of learning and teaching run a program um they run a cross curriculum cross departmental entrepreneurship um program to encourage edtech innovation from within its student bodies. I think this links to the question as well from the last panel. And, and what they do is they actually provide seed funding to student teams, but the students could, and, and they, they're tackling issues within learning and, learning and teaching. So these are students at Harvard, hugely smart, one would presume. They might be studying engineering, history, and law. And three of those people might come together and solve a problem that they see as students in their own body. And I think that's really interesting and they've had some really interesting success with companies coming out of that. Um, interestingly, Handshake is also founded by three students. So we're seeing a lot of innovation coming directly from yeah. students, coming out and saying, this is wrong, I'm going to fix it, help me on my way. And yeah. I think that that's a really interesting theme maybe. Yeah, and that's certainly something that I um, come across with the, with the startups that we're working with, with, um, with Emerge and so on, is it's very often students who've kind of spotted something that doesn't work. And just to bit, I am coming to you in a second, Vic, don't worry. Um, just to pick up and, and, and just to, to build on what Angela was saying about, um, you know, assessment and evidence of skills and um, uh, competence that matters. I mean, what employers are saying is we want, you know, graduates are coming to us without the soft skills, you know, I mean, and... To be honest, I'm a bit older than most people in this room. And to be honest, it's been the same story for decades. And, and I just wondered whether you think there's something that we're just completely missing out there in higher education, which, uh, all right, we're teaching the academic subjects on the, on the courses and so on. And, and yet still employers are crying out that, that people are coming to them without the, you know, these, the skills that apparently make them good uh, employees. Is, is that something that you... Yeah, I 100% I, uh, agree. You know, I have, I'm almost embarrassed. I went to Cambridge. I went to Cambridge. I graduated in 2007. I did French and Italian for two years. Um, I found out that on my fourth year, I was selecting my 
papers to take and I realised that actually all of my papers would be taught and assessed in English but I would graduate from Cambridge with a degree in French and Italian speaking pretty much no French or Italian and I just thought I'm too embarrassed I can't do that and go into the real world and you, you know you're in an interview and say, oh this is Katie she has a degree in Cambridge from French and Italian and an Italian says something and me sit there and go I've no idea what you're saying but I can tell you about Dante and it's, it's just not helpful it's just not helpful and to me that was part of you know if I think about where my beliefs have come from now I think a lot of the fuel has come from having my own kids and thinking my husband went to Cambridge it was good for getting husbands it was great for finding husbands um, but one husband just to be clear uh, uh, but I you know did it give me a skill set no I mean the, the joke is I actually didn't change degree I graduated in my last year in geography I studied geography for seven months in Cambridge and this I'm, I'm singling out Cambridge because it was my experience I, I, I don't mean to disrespect it and hopefully no one here is from Cambridge and it's going to come and scream at me um, but it, it was the most ac- academic and I use that in a it was just so disconnected from the real world. Yeah. And there was, there was no, every assessment was an essay. So in my finals, I sat essays. I, sat, I wrote eight essays on volcanoes, AIDS, economic development, and Africa. I graduated, I, graduated, I got my 2-1. And then three years later, I got an email saying, hello, Catherine, if you transfer 10 pounds or send a check for 10 pounds, yeah, we'll convert you to a master's. <laughs> and I thought it was a joke. So I Googled it. And me and my husband at this point are sitting there going, we can get a master's for a tenner. This is great. And we got a party. So we went back, had this party, paid our £10, got on. Um, and it's just... But I, honestly, I, I just think now, if I look at what I want for my children, yes, I want them to have skills. I want them to have all the things that I don't think I have. I've never done public speaking. I run conferences for a living. You know, I find this really difficult. And I shouldn't. I yeah. should be able to do this without apologising, without feeling a bit nervous, which I do, to be completely yeah. frank. Well, you're, you're doing it brilliantly. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Don't tell and, my husband. And by the way, I think geography is an absolutely awesome subject. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I do um, talks to sixth formers, I always say, think about geography, because I just think it's just such a great good subject. Good for husbands. Good for husbands. Uh, very good, obviously very good for, for husband uh, material as well. Um, but also... Um, uh, okay, we have a despairing uh, Angela here. Sorry. Um, the, you know, the point you're, you're pointing out, I mean, that was 2007, which is a little while ago, and I'm sure things have changed there. But, you know, they could have at least taught you maybe how to build your own website or something. Um, or even just, a, I had no teamwork. So my, no teamwork, yeah. no, um, I mean, I know a Viva is a hugely expensive and difficult way to test, but it is, it's someone speaking to you about what you believe. That, I mean, the one, I won't, I won't dwell on it, but one company I do think is super interesting right now, and I, I know it's controversial to raise on a higher education evening, is White Hat, because they're basically yeah, merging... absolutely. You know, for those of you that don't know White Hat, they're giving apprentices, and the apprentice can be at any age, um, a paid-for job. So you go into a job in, say, Google or Facebook or big, proper, exciting, fast-growth companies, and they do digital training on the side. So you're paid a job and you're trained. So you get the two-in-one, and I think that's a really yeah. interesting real life yeah and model. and and the way um so it's, it's actually run by ewan blair who's tony blair's son um and he's you know he's really worked at bringing at democratizing that to people who um perhaps have more disadvantaged backgrounds in in london as well now vic you've um you've been very patient while we've <laughs> uh while we've had this conversation um uh, it would be really interesting to hear about how your learner variability project how resources like that can help um, startups deliver 
better education technologies. Absolutely. I'm running over a bit, by the way, because we, we had some time stolen by the last lovely panel, so I'm going I'm to run over by five or so minutes. So real quick, before I jump into that, given what was just said, I just want to highlight, I've hired many people and built many teams. The number one reason I've rejected potential applicants for jobs is because either through references or clearly through the process, I've gotten the feedback that they're hard to work with, they don't collaborate well. If I've invested in building a team, yeah. the last thing <clears throat> I can do is have someone who's going to hurt that in a significant way, potentially. And the sad part is in education, and particularly for assessment, collaboration is considered cheating. Right? Oh, good, good thought. So yeah. that is a tension that needs to be solved. Um, so learner variability. And so Digital Promise First is a nonprofit out of the US, uh, and we do kind of research with ed tech product developers and entrepreneurs and situated in districts with networks of districts across the country in the US. Um, and what I had up there is the Learner Variability Project. And where that I think is quite relevant in higher ed is um, you know, learner variability is this notion that actually we all vary in how we learn best. Not just what we know or don't know, but how we actually learn best. That's why one method of teaching will not work for all learners. Um, and it ends up the learning sciences is really highlighting what are the key factors that people vary on that impacts how they learn and how they learn best. And Todd Rose out of Harvard wrote this wonderful book, The End of Average, which powerfully demonstrates that if you have many factors with variability, actually nobody is average across everything. So if we just design to this average, that actually we're not supporting most people. Um, and so um, why this is important in higher ed, I think uh, first is I think there's two key kind of mindset shifts that have to happen. Number one is what I call the toxic incentive of higher ed. And I know this is clear in the US, I assume in many other countries, is that sadly in higher ed, quality is associated with how few people you accept and how few people succeed. Oh, yeah, good thing. That's toxic. Okay, we need to have it set up where quality is how many people we unlock the full potential of. And that should be the goal of the system. Um, and then the second is, too often, and my father was a professor at an Ivy League institution, and you know, I saw this in-house and everywhere, if you have to change or support or teach in a different way, there's huge concern that you're dumbing it down, right? And that it's not rigorous then. But yet, we have clear scientific evidence that people vary in how they learn best, and it actually, they have far more people can achieve and attain education with the right supports and pathways and instructional methods. And so what we've been doing is um, at the Learn Variability Project, we work with many of the world's top learning scientists. And from a whole person lens, we're actually mapping what we know from the learning sciences of where do people vary that we know have evidence has an impact on their educational outcomes. And we have a whole, uh, you can go to our site, lvp.digitalpromise.org. Everything we do is free and under Creative Commons license and completely open source. Um, and it's across including social emotional, background variability, cognition variability, and in academic subjects. I will say much of our stuff has been in primary and secondary education. But if you take our four through six literacy model, it's actually much of that transfers to the adult learning and even higher education. And then what we do is we tie those factors to strategies, instructional and product design strategies that have research behind them to support variability in those factors. Um, and so essentially how, 
how can you leverage the learning science and base it off the learning science to support more learners to succeed, whether you're designing products or learning environments um, or even organizationally? And there's clear evidence. Tony Bright, out of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, you know, took on in community colleges and developmental math where there's only a 20% success rate. And he brought a broader lens that included social-emotional learning and so student background, diverse student background supports and all this, and they had tremendous successes and improvements in completion rates. So this is clearly possible. Far more people can succeed. And um, this is where the beauty of EdTech is that it does allow personalization. It does allow many more paths for people to take to learn. And we can support that and have a lot more people succeeding. That's the true promise and potential. But we need to base that on the learning science. We need to make sure we design to the edges for the whole learner. Um, and what we say, our, our motto is that when uh, you take the lens of learner variability and design based off of that research, then you don't see student problems, you see design challenges. And if we hold that bar for ourselves, we can really unlock the potential of far more learners. Thank you so much. I mean, student problems. <laughs> student problems as design challenges. That's, that's a fantastically um, positive note. Do you think, Vic, that with the sort of massification of higher education, that, you know, more and more people in this country, it's, um, it's near enough 50% have, have uh, had undergraduate education by the age of 30. I, I don't know what it's like in, in the US. But do you think we've lost the idea or that it's become a bit more like school learning and we've lost the idea that higher education is about the creation and sharing of knowledge and that students are part of... The, the, the academic or the scholarly community that does that together rather than teacher and learner so much? Do you think that's something that technology can um, assist in kind of bringing back into higher education? I think so. I think higher education can help with that. I think what would help with that is really situating more of the curriculum and pedagogy around real-world challenges because that okay. forces cross-discipline... Yeah. Yeah you know, cross-competency, collaboration that is more about building novel knowledge rather than just repeating the knowledge yeah. of what was in the past. Yeah. And so seeing schools that are doing that, I think are really pushing the forefront. And I think that kind of catalyzes that kind of thinking. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's so interesting because um, there was a, a research report out from a, um, a tech company actually operating in the, in the second, or, you know, our high school system. Um, and... This year's cohort are most likely to be searching for interdisciplinary um, liberal arts and science type courses, which of course are not that common in the in in the UK system. But so, but it seems to be kind of bubbling up. Um, UCL is is one of the universities that has a very um, successful course. There's a there's a new startup, the London Interdisciplinary School, getting going. Um, we're getting a little bit off topic now. We're going to take a couple of questions. I'm I, I'm getting the evil eye there a bit, but I I felt like we had to have our half hour. Uh, right now we've got one question here. So a microphone there, and then we'll go to to you, and then we'll see how we're doing. There's one over there as well. Yes, uh, just say who you are. Hi, um, my name is Andre Skeppel. I'm founder of an early stage ed tech company called Full Spectrum. Called, also participant called, called, called Full Spectrum, okay. and uh, we are participants of Cohort Nine of the Educate um, project. Um, so the question I have for you guys, which might be quite impactful, um, is from a local and global perspective. What would you say are the key socioeconomic roles and responsibilities in EdTech and AI that can help further embrace 
understand, collaborate, and advance diversity within learning, teaching, and human development. And by diversity, I don't just mean cultural, racial, or economic. I also mean neurological. So, you know, within teaching and learning, that contributes towards great disparities that children are currently facing um, within the academic achievement and social ability, especially with special educational needs. Okay, now that sounds like we could have a whole other panel on, um, on that one. And, I, and I'm going to compress it a little bit because that was a very big question. Let's, let's just uh, think about technology and teaching and learning and, and how it um, can help democratise, widen participation, uh, increasing inclusivity um, and diversity. Do, did you want to say something about that, Katie? No, I was going to add, we should also talk about bringing about world peace, because I think that was the only bit missing from the yeah, <laughs> huge yeah, talent. No, I t and I totally agree with everything you've just said, and I would love the answer, so I'm going to hand that to someone. Yeah, Angela. <laughs> well, well, sadly, I think it's... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking now as a, a trustee of a schools trust, which is absolutely determined not to play any of the games that some schools have recently been caught out in of um, somehow losing from their role children who are, have challenges <coughs> which make it very difficult for them to achieve according to the one model of achievement that the system recognises. Um, and it's incredibly hard to fight the system. And it comes back to this notion that we, we are living in a system where what good looks like is determined politically and very narrowly. Yeah. So in the university system, for example, one of Middlesex's challenges is a lot of the people who graduate from Middlesex um, have gone into that university because it's absolutely committed to a work-based learning model. And they are many of the students are very effective entrepreneurs when they graduate and they set up their own small companies. Setting up an SME is not recognised by the Department for Education or BIS as graduate employment. So the employment stats for Middlesex take a hit. That means Middlesex takes a hit on one of the variables in the league tables. Now, you might think, well, let's be really brave here and say, well, I could quote Boris Johnson to the league tables, but... We're not, we can't, because students choosing universities take those league tables at yeah, face value. And that's a real problem. The people in this building recently, very recently, published their definitive guide. They put Cambridge number one, Durham number two, oh, big news, it wasn't Oxford, and Oxford number three. If you actually go in to the variables they use, a number of the variables, particularly around student satisfaction, for Oxford and Cambridge, there is no value. There is a value for all the other universities. So how the heck did they weight those variables that meant that Cambridge and Oxford still came first and third? So, you know, we're in a rigged system. It's incredibly difficult to maintain your position in academia, in the school yeah. league tables, by doing exactly what you're seeking and what's happening as a result is we have large tracts of the population for whom the dice is loaded against them and it's I will finish that but, it, but it's so bloody stupid because those people end up causing society significant economic harm yeah. 
not through their, you know, through no fault of their own, it would be so much cheaper to offer those people an effective education and allow them the economic and social success of which they are capable. Yeah. It just makes no sense. And, and we could have another panel about the uh, uh, about league tables, you know, not least that some of them measure the quality of qualifications coming in, which of course yeah. immediately discriminates it. Now, I'm looking for the snappiest question. That it's a bit like that last one you get on question time that we could all do a really short answer to. Who's got that perfect question? Okay, I have it's it. you. I have it. My name is Heba. I'm from Current Open Higher Education for, for Refugees. Tomorrow is World Refugee Day. So this is um, a very special question. We offer higher education for refugees for free. Um, and um, my question is, why did or is um, open educational resources not very popular and sexy? Because you said that cooperative behavior is the most important thing you see in your um, employees. Are you academics and people from the university also um, try to find that in your teachers? Because this is actually the very big struggle we have in Germany, where teachers don't share content of their very boring lectures. They actually, like the lecture of introduction in economics is like, Thousands of them are all over the world, and still <laughs> okay. they are not able to share it. So why Fantastic. is it the case? Okay, now this is going to be like a, a one word about open education resources, and, and particularly um, for for helping refugees. And th thank you for that for that question. Uh, quick, quick fire! I know so it's a hard so one. If I answer the question is why people don't use open educational resources and why they... Or yeah. why aren't there more? Okay. What, legacy. I will have to take slightly more. Okay. I was program Very officer at Hewlett Foundation and funded about $70 million worth of open educational resources and headed up their strategy. So, oh, we are, and it's, a dear, it's near and dear to me. Um, I will say the biggest thing, I think the biggest mindset shift that needs to happen is not why OER, but why proprietary. Right? If we set the default as open and then we close what needs to be closed, yeah. there's reasons to close things, but the default is that things are open. Then suddenly you shift the mindset. Whereas if the default is everything is proprietary, then people don't think about it and it all Fantastic. just gets locked up and put away. Yeah, that is a, that is a brilliant... Okay, one... Two, one, two, two things. Two. Uh, okay, the, two. The, the first, the I'm not first doing project, very well here. The first project I got involved with around open sourcing was so long ago that God's dog was a puppy. Um, and there were two reasons why people didn't want to contribute. One was they were genuinely concerned that their resources were not good enough and that they would be exposed, yeah. often unfounded. And the other is you don't get credit for it. So when people like the Times Educational Supplement started to have a model whereby you could actually generate some income and get some credit, suddenly the floodgates opened. So we've got to think about, you know, what, what's the quality assurance model? Can you get your stuff quality assured other than putting it out there and being publicly shamed? And can you get some credit for the good stuff? Um, uh, I've, I'm in deep trouble because I've gone way over even the extra time that I kind of agreed to take. Um, and I really apologise, but I think it's been a really stimulating and fantastic panel. So please could you join me uh, in Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you want to find out more about the network, go to etn.eu to see what they're up to. 
I'm at the Learning Technology Summer Forum this week, if you're listening in real time. Then it's all about editing the next Education 4.0 series episode, where we look at the people and processes which embed change. Have an amazing week and whatever you're doing, good luck. <laughs>